Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, even passages like this that are challenging. Um, and I pray that uh, you'd give us some insight into it as we look at it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you know the phrase warts and all? Do you know where that phrase comes from? I learned this this week. Um, you know, you've heard that phrase before, right? You know, oh, we love that house, warts and all, or I loved my car, warts and all. You, you know the phrase I'm talking about. I think a more modern version of that is, uh, that's a face only a mother could love. I think that's the sentiment of it. And the phrase basically means, uh, show the whole thing. So show the whole thing, uh, not concealing the less attractive parts, but just get it all out there. And the phrase, it actually comes from Oliver Cromwell. Um, who, you know, I'm sure all of you know your um, 15th century uh, uh, English history. I'm sure all of you are up to speed on who Oliver Cromwell is. But just in case you're not, you know, one or two of you, maybe not. Uh, he was made Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland in the mid-1600s. Um, now, it's kind of hard to explain what Lord Protector is. Um, but basically, he was like a king but he wasn't really a king. So kind of like an emperor, maybe, I don't know. He was a military leader, and then he, he had Charles I killed, and then he took over. Anyway, it doesn't matter. That's not the point of the story. <laughs> the point of the story is he was made Lord Protector, and uh, then he sat for an official portrait, you know, that's going to hang in uh, perpetuity forever. And so Cromwell was a very practical man, and he actually very famously had bad skin. Um, so his face uh, often had pimples on it and warts and things like that. And it was common at that time uh, when a painting a portrait of such an important person that the, the artist would sort of, you know, airbrush over all the, you know, imperfections. Um, you know, paint them in a more flattering light, sort of like an Instagram filter. So I guess things haven't really changed much in 450 years. But Cromwell didn't want that. Instead, he said very famously to the painter, I want you to paint me pimples and warts and all. And that's where the phrase comes from. Uh, and so he did. And so we can go to the next slide. Here's the famous painting. And you can see there's a wart above his right eye. There's a couple more in his chin. Um, and a uh, very attractive man. Um, so there we go. Um, now today's passage is a warts and all kind of passage. It actually ends with a shocking controversy, which is we're going to start with that. Because why not start with the controversy? Um, you know, we love a controversy, don't we? I do. Uh, and this one has it all, by the way. It has money. Uh, it has a, a conspiracy, it has rich people, it has poor people, it has lying, and in the end, it has death. And so this is a good controversy. This has all the good stuff. And most of the time, people like to use this passage to talk about money and giving to the church. Um, and it's not a, pa- a bad passage to, to do that with. However, it seems the whole reason uh, that money comes up actually has to do with the unity and disunity of the church. And that unity or disunity actually has a lot to say about uh, just the relevance of the church in their city, in their community, in the first century. Uh, In other words, it's possible that if you're a person who's struggling to see how the Christian faith actually is relevant to your life, it might be that disunity in the church led you there. That the disunity, like we see at the end of our passage... That if you're the kind of person that's like, gosh, I just struggle with the whole idea of the church. It's pretty likely that you've seen disunity somewhere. Uh, In other words, it's possible that if you're a person who's struggling to see that, um, you might even read a passage like this and be like, see? 
See? Even when it started, it was messed up. Uh, on the other hand, if you're a person who loves the church, it's, it's likely that at some point along the way, you've actually experienced the kind of unity within the church that we see at the start of the passage. That it might be that, that you've actually made it through and pushed past all the disunity that you've seen because you've, you've seen, you've experienced real unity within the church. And Luke's point is for us to learn and to love the church just as Jesus does, warts and all. I think that's why Luke includes that here. And so because we love the church, then we should seek unity within it. And so what we're doing today is we're actually picking up in a series in the book of Acts, which is all about the, the spreading and the thriving of the church. Uh, we were looking at this um, earlier in the year, and in our passage, in spite of the disunity and the controversy, we see the church both thriving and spreading. And so we're going to look at our passage in three parts. Part, part one, the controversy, one controversy. Part two, one heart and mind. And part three, one reason. Uh, and so part one, the one controversy. Um, now, in the book of Acts up to this point, the church, it's not been around for very long. Um, but it has actually seen explosive growth in the city of Jerusalem to the tune of several thousand people uh, all at once just coming in and joining the church. But where we left off the story a couple months ago, the church was actually facing some pretty serious pressure from the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. I don't know if you remember this, but uh, some of the early leaders got pulled in front of the same group of people that condemned Jesus to death. And that was the last time that kind of group of people was brought together, was to condemn Jesus to death. And now the leaders of the church are being brought in front of them. So that's the kind of pressure, the kind of threat that the church is under. There are external threats. But in today's passage, there's a new pressure, a new threat that comes up. But this one actually comes from within. It actually comes from inside the church, from its own members. And when you read it, let's just, let's just get the, I'm just going to say it. Let's just get it out there. It's really disturbing. <laughs> uh, it is a pretty disturbing story about divine judgment. And so the question is, why put it here? Why is it in here? You know, if you were writing, think about this, if you were writing a book to attract people to Christianity in the early days, why would you put this story in? Why would you put it here? Now, it makes the church look bad. It makes God look scary. And yet, Luke decides not to suppress this story. And so why put it in here? Why put this here, warts and all? Why is it here? Well, I think it's because Luke sees something in this passage that if we get it, if we can understand it, if we can grasp it, it will actually lead our church to a unity that is more shocking to our city than any controversy could ever be. That, that we could be so unified that the whole city around us would be shocked at the unity that exists within this group of people. If we could live that out, everyone would be talking about it like it's a controversy. So what's the controversy that's so bad that results in this divine judgment? Well, we know that it ended in the deaths of both Ananias and Sapphira. Um, you know, how did this happen? What led to this? How did, how did they get there? Well, the context is this. At the end of chapter 4, which we'll look at in detail in a minute, that uh, everyone in the church was, was looking out. It says that everyone was looking out for the needs of everyone else. So much so that it says the wealthy in the church were selling property, land, possessions to cover the needs of the poor in the church. It goes so far to say in, in chapter 4, verse 34, that there were no needy persons in the church. 
And then, as verse 34 goes on, it says this, For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, then verse 35, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And then Luke gives a very specific example about a man named Joseph uh, in verse 36, who says he sold a field that he owned, and he gave all of that money to the church. And because of that, they gave him this really endearing nickname. Uh, They gave him the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So what do we have here? What's going on? Well, remember this. What we're talking about here is Luke is writing about, uh, in this section of the book of Acts, the primary threats, the primary opposition to the church within the first year or so of of its existence. In other words, what kinds of things could have killed the church in its earliest days had God not intervened? So this is what we're talking about here. And it'd be easy to read this and think, aha, aha, I found it. Yes, I see what, it's right there. It's greed. Greed is the thing that would kill the church. That's the greatest threat. You know, look at Ananias and Sapphira, they're greedy. Well, yeah, to one degree that is true. But let's look at the whole picture. There's something more foundational at play here. Because we have leading up to this part uh, is a story, a description of incredible unity. And and a specific example of someone expressing that unity by selling some land and giving all of the money to the leaders of the church to distribute it to those who have a need. And then in very stark contrast, what you get is the controversy of Ananias and Sapphira. And it says in chapter 5, verse 1, that they, just like Barnabas, they sold a piece of property. Okay, so far so good. Maybe we're going to get a whole string of stories of people who just sold stuff and gave the money away. So you got Barnabas. And now we got Ananias and Sapphira. But then in verse 2, it says they kept back some of the money for themselves. Uh Uh-oh. And the word Luke actually uses for that phrase, kept back, it's a very specific, very precise word. And in the whole New Testament, it's only used uh, here in both verses 2 and 3 and one other place in Titus uh, chapter 2, verse 10, where the word is translated steal. The word actually means to pilfer or to embezzle. Now, combine that with the description of what they did with the money, so they embezzled it. Combine that with the, uh, the interrogation that Peter uh, gives to Ananias and then his wife Sapphira later. And in this conversation that Peter has with Ananias, what he's trying to do is get at the heart of what's happening here. And what does Peter say? In verses 3 and 4, essentially he says, hey, Ananias, okay, you sold that field. You sold the field. That field was yours. It it belonged to you. It was your field to do whatever you wanted with. And then when you got the money, you got all that cash. That cash was yours. It it all belonged to you. You could do whatever you want with. You could have given 50%. You could have given 20. You could have given 10%, 5%, 1%. Any percentage would have been fine because it was your field, your money to do with what you wished. But the question Peter asked of Ananias was, why would you lie and say you're giving the whole thing when you're not? And when Peter asks that question, he's really beginning to get at the heart of what's going on. The issue is not that they didn't give all the money. The issue is that they said they would give all the money, but then they kept back part of what they promised to give. And so the issue is not the percentage of giving. But the lie. Aha, okay, we, maybe we found it. Have we circled on it? Have we landed on 
the real issue, the thing that is maybe going to kill the church, maybe the greatest threat to the church in its earliest days was lying. And yes, of course, that is a threat. But let's, again, let's look at the whole picture, the whole thing that Luke is painting here. Because the way that Luke contrasts this story with Barnabas and the specific detail he gives us about his name being changed actually gives us the whole picture. We actually begin to see what's at the heart of Ananias and Sapphira's actions. So yes, they wanted some of the money from selling their property. So yes, there's greed. Yes, they lied about it. But more than that, the contrast that Luke is making here is with Barnabas. It shows us actually what they really wanted was the kind of recognition within the church that Barnabas got. Barnabas was given a very endearing nickname, Son of Encouragement. You know, everyone in the church is like, oh, there he is, that's the guy. We changed his name, Barnabas. And Ananias and Sapphira look at this and, and, and they want a reputation like that. Maybe hoping also to get a nickname. Maybe they wanted one that was something like son and daughter of generosity. You know, their name on the, the plaque on the back of every chair in the sanctuary. <laughs> they weren't concerned with those in the church who had needs. They weren't concerned with that. They didn't care as much if the church thrived. They weren't concerned with the spreading of the church. They were concerned with their own reputation. In other words, they wanted to be exalted. They wanted to be lifted up. And so they were giving, not in order to give, but they were giving in order to get something back from it. And this desire to be exalted, this desire to be lifted up is the exact opposite of the unity that Luke describes at the end of chapter 4. The main issue here is that the actions of Ananias and Sapphira were a major disruption to the unity of the church. And when Luke, uh, Peter asks these uh, questions, we begin to see that the single greatest threat that comes from within, that comes from inside the church, the greatest internal threat is disunity. It's discord. It's dissent. The threat of disunity, it actually shows up again in chapter 6. We're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. And that's how important this message really is. That the single greatest internal threat, internal opposition to a church, to any church, is disunity. So if that's the threat, how do we avoid that? How do we avoid disunity? And not only avoid disunity, but but actually grow in radical countercultural unity. And that's part two, one heart and one mind. Uh, I mean, I got married 15 years ago next month, just a few weeks away actually from our anniversary. And I remember when we were registering for gifts, those of you that have been married, maybe you've done this. Um, our friends told us, uh, you know, don't just register for plates and silverware and napkins and, you know, bedding and boring things like that, but register for one or two really fun things. So I was like, okay, this sounds really good. And so at the time, the Nintendo Wii was a big thing. This is how old I am. And, uh, and so we're walking around Target, and uh, we had this little scan gun. You know, you could, like, scan the barcode on things that you wanted on your list. And so I'm, like, holding the scan gun. Emmy's distracted from it for a minute, and I just kind of quietly slip away to the electronic section, and I just, the Nintendo Wii. And uh, sure enough, someone got us one. Uh, I was so excited. I was like, this is the best wedding gift ever. Uh, but this Nintendo Wii brought an extraordinary disunity into our marriage. 
in the earliest days, but not for the reasons that you think. The disunity is because almost every night after dinner, Emmy and I started playing Super Mario. And the way that game worked was, like, the level was constantly moving. Like, you had to constantly be moving ahead. And if one player moved far enough ahead, it would kill the other player. And uh, so you had to play in unison with one heart and one mind to defeat every level and get to Bowser in the end. And so one of us would be Mario, one of us would be Luigi, but you had to work together. You have to. If one of you moves ahead too quickly, it would kill the other one. I kept moving too quickly. And so Emmy's character kept dying. And she would get so upset with me. And I would get so upset with her. And she'd say, slow down and wait for me. I'd say, speed up, come on. We've got to get to Bowser, come on. And every night we played this, um, we'd go to bed angry. We played almost every night for like two or three months. <laughs> Until one day we finally realized the discord... And the dissent and the disunity in our marriage had to do with playing Mario every night. And so we realized for the sake of our marriage that we had to stop playing Mario. And so it was causing serious disunity. We were not of one heart or of one mind. We were only looking out for ourselves. Actually, that's not true. Looking back on it, Emmy was pretty virtuous in all this. I was the one looking out for myself. So let's just be honest there. Now, the early church, despite countless reasons to be disunited, for there to be factions, dissent, self-seeking, some people running ahead, there are all kinds of opportunities for that. But instead, what we get is a picture of a shocking unity in chapter 4. And there's also one back in chapter 2, and there's more that come up later. And the way that, that, that Luke describes this in chapter 4, verse 32, is like this. It says, all the believers were in one heart and mind. Now, think about this. This is absolutely extraordinary. The very earliest church, the very earliest group of Christians was made up of people from all over the known world. Back in chapter 2, it says that the church is incredibly diverse. It says people from every kind of background, ethnicity, and language on earth all join into this brand new church. And it's clear in this passage that people, not just from different Uh, ethnic backgrounds, not just from different parts of the world, not just different languages, but people from different economic backgrounds are there. Because it's clear you have the very wealthy and the very poor all in the same church. And yet, it's extraordinary. How does Luke describe them? Not like cats trying to get them together, but of one heart and one mind. No one is running ahead. No one is left behind. There is a comprehensive unity. They play their Mario together. They're moving in the same direction. And so he's talking about a profound unity that took priority over everything else that was actually shocking to the whole world around them. And what's interesting is throughout the book of Acts, Luke actually pauses regularly to describe the kinds of things that this community would do together. We've seen some of it already, that they would devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, we've seen that they would eat together, that they would pray together, that they would serve together, they would go out all over the world together. But there's two things mentioned here that get mentioned almost every single time Luke talks about the, the essential nature, the essence of what the early church is. And both of them are expressions, in other words, both of them are outworkings of their unity. And here they are. Luke goes on to say in verse 32, 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And so the first expression that, of unity that shows up uh, almost every time Luke talks about the church is of sharing their possessions. And then the second one, verse 33, it says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so the second expression of their unity is actually a sharing, but it's a verbal testifying, a verbal sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those outside the church. And so what we're seeing here is a radical countercultural generosity, both inside and outside the church. Inside, they generously share their possessions. Outside, they share the gospel. So let's look at these in turn. This unity was so profound and so comprehensive that it actually impacted their, their finances, how they, would, how they would help and serve one another in the church. Because verse 32, it says they started sharing everything they had. And then verse 34, there were no needy persons among them. And then you have the part about those owning land and houses, selling them and, and bringing the the money to the apostles' feet and distributing it. Now, what is going on here? This is is radical generosity. And we'll get to the why in a minute, but notice how radical this generosity is. People are selling what is rightfully theirs and giving the money away. Now, the only way a person can do that is if something other than the self, other than themselves, something other than than their, their wealth has gripped their hearts and their minds that their heart is dedicated to and set on something other than building up their own personal best life now. Now, suffice it to say for the moment that the mark, the clear picture of a Christian who is unified with his or her church is that he or she is generous with those in their church. And so that's the first expression of unity. It's a generosity in sharing possessions and money with those inside the church. Now, the second one we have already said is a generosity in sharing the gospel message, and that's in verse 33. It says, with great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So follow this. Verse 32 and verse 34 are about sharing possessions, but sandwiched in between them is a verse about evangelism. And it seems a little bit odd to to squeeze this in here, except when you take it in context of the entire book of Acts. Because Luke mentions evangelism in every single chapter of the book of Acts in one way or another. That is his most frequent topic. Now, what's this getting at? A unique expression of the unity of the early church is a unity that was constantly inviting others in. That what they had experienced in knowing Christ was so profound to them that they couldn't help but invite others in. Read through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, where Jesus tells the apostles to go out to every nation on earth, and you'll see them doing it. Heading to all four corners of the globe, generously sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, inviting others into the united of one heart and one mind church of Jesus Christ. And when that happens, the unity of the church, that very specific unity, the oneness that comes together out of a diverse group of people, becomes utterly attractive to the world around. I think I might have shared this a few months ago, but um, back when Emmy and I were living overseas, we, um, the church that we're in is very diverse. I think we had probably more than 20 different nationalities in our church there. 
Uh, and so it's a very diverse group of people. And uh, one, one afternoon, one evening, uh, we, were, we were with some friends uh, out somewhere, I think having lunch. And uh, it was a really, you know, maybe 10, 12, 15 of us sitting around, and it was an unbelievably diverse group of people. Uh, we had some in the group who were older, they're probably in their 60s, some in the group who were uh, in their first year at university, so they're probably 18 or 19 years old, so we had this wide range of ages. We had people from, uh, obviously from Europe, we had people from North America, we had people from South America, we had people from Asia, we had people from the Middle East, all of us hanging out together. White, black, Asian, Persian, some who are obviously very well off, and some who are obviously not so well off. Uh, We're all out together, uh, and uh, we're hanging out for about an hour or so, and this woman comes up to us, and she said, I'm really sorry to interrupt you, but my husband and I have been sitting over there the whole time that you guys have been here, and we've, uh, we can't figure out why this group of people would all be sitting together and enjoying each other so much. What would bring this group of people together? And of course, the answer to that is Christ. That the one thing we had in common is that we all had received the proclaimed truth about Jesus Christ, that he is God in the flesh. That he was crucified, buried, and risen. That was what we had in common. But there is no other affinity would bring, that would bring that group together. I mean, sure, maybe one or two in the group might be brought together because they cheer for the same sports team or work in the same office. But not this group of people. And so the two expressions, the two outworkings of unity that Luke puts front and center are radical generosity of money and possessions inside the church and a radical generosity of sharing the gospel message to those outside the church in order to invite them in. And so unity like this, this is how a church avoids internal threats. A comprehensive unity that expresses itself in generosity is how a church thrives and spreads across the globe. Now, what gives a church the ability to live with that kind of generosity, with that kind of unity? Well, Luke uh, also gives us the one reason, and that's part three, one reason. And look again at verse 33, because here now we're sandwiched even more in between these two things. In verse 33, do you see what it says sandwiched in there at the end of the verse? Uh, right in between the part about evangelism and the part about sharing possessions. You see what it says there, verse 33? It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And this is the one reason for their unity expressed in generosity. This is the one reason. That the grace of God is so powerfully at work in them all. And what is the grace of God? Well, one of the ways the earliest Christians talked about that is a doctrine called our union with Christ. Uh, in Romans 6, 5, it talks about this. It talks about the Christian. It says that the Christian is united with Christ in his death and united with him in his resurrection from the dead. In Philippians chapter 2, it says not only that the Christian is united with Christ, but that union with Christ leads to a profound union with other Christians. And so this is an important doctrine. This is what the early church was trying to live out. And so here's what this is showing us. It's showing us that when a person becomes a Christian, they become spiritually united with Christ. That there is a union between Jesus and a Christian that is so essential, it begins to transform the new Christian. And often when talking about this, I'll use the example of a couple who gets married. Uh, If you've been to a wedding recently, I know some of you have. uh, What does the pastor say at the end of the service? 
The pastor says, after they said their vows and exchanged their rings and they've uh, kissed in front of their grandparents, what does the pastor say? (laughs) He usually says something like this. They are no longer two, but one. Have you heard that? Now, what is the pastor saying? He's saying these two are now united. They're united in such a way that it begins to transform their lives in an essential way. It changes where they live. It changes where they sleep. It changes what they eat. It changes what they wear. You know, most men's wardrobe gets better. (laughs) It changes what they do on Christmas and on Thanksgiving. It changes what they do on an average Tuesday night. It changes what they think about, what they dream about, what they pray about, what they talk about. It changes how they spend their money. It changes how they save their money and what they put it towards. Now, why does that happen? Well, before each of them were single, each person's life was their own. But once they're married, now life is a participation of the husband and the wife. They both participate in the one life now. One home, one bank account, one meal, one Christmas, one Thanksgiving. The two lives become a participation of the one life united together. They are no longer two, but one. And all of this, you know, all that belonged to the groom before this now belongs to the bride. And all that belonged to the bride now belongs to the groom. Everything united together. And so here's what this is getting at. When a person becomes a Christian, when a person becomes a Christian through God, the Holy Spirit, the Christian and Christ are no longer two, but one. The Christian's life now becomes a participation in Christ's life. And Christ's life now becomes a participation in the Christian's life. And all that belongs to Christ becomes ours. And all all of his goodness, all of his love, all of that now belongs to us. And in exchange, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all of those things become his. Or put that another way, all of our debt for our sin now belongs to him. And at the heart of the Christian gospel is the song we sang earlier today, isn't it? That Jesus paid it all. Out of his storehouse, he pays it all. So when Luke says, the grace of God is at work in them all, this is what he's talking about. That as they're growing in their union with Christ, the result is that they grow in their union with one another. So much so that we read in verse 32, this is such a picture of unity. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. All that belonged to this church member belonged to this one. And all that belonged to this one belonged to that one. So now back to our controversy that we started with. I hope you can see why what Ananias and Sapphira did was such a controversy, why it was such a problem. It wasn't so much that they were greedy, though they were. It wasn't so much that they were lying, though they did. The real controversy was that they were destroying and breaking down the unity of the church. That's what was happening. This is why it's, you have this terrifying divine judgment. God's saying, not in this church. We're not going to have disunity in this church. 
So, what's the application of a passage like this? Well, it's really simple. Go home, sell everything you have, and next week bring the money back. And... <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe. No, don't do that. This is the application of a passage like this. Seek to be so united with Christ that your union with him causes you to be so united with everyone else in this church that you would put their needs before your own. That we would be so united with Christ that that results in us being of one heart and one mind. United with one another. I referenced this passage just a minute ago, but the place in the New Testament that spells this out most clearly is Philippians chapter 2, and it says this. We can put it on the screen. It says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being, what's that word? United with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Do you see the way the Apostle Paul lays it out there? That if you, have, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you're experiencing any of his love, if you're experiencing any comfort from him, anything shared with you by his Holy Spirit, if you've received any tenderness or compassion from Christ, then he says, let that shape how you treat one another in the church. In other words, any union with Christ, then it's union with one another. And the way that works itself out, Paul says, is humility. Valuing others above yourselves, looking to the interests of others over your own. And of course, maybe you know the next part of the passage, but the next part of the passage is describing Jesus emptying himself entirely. Taking the very nature of a servant, lowering himself to the lowest. In other words, the exact opposite of Ananias and Sapphira who are trying to exalt themselves. And so if you want to avoid the controversy and disunity in this church, and I hope that you do, then seek to be united with Christ and with one another. And if we do that, we'll, be, we'll do just fine. Warts and all, this church, warts and all, will do just fine. Well, let me just encourage you with one last thing before I pray. Uh, last week, we set out to try and do something like this. Remember on Easter, we said we're going to take an offering for our church doppelganger in London. And we said, hey, we want to try and raise $1,200 to help with a particular project they have in modernizing their building. Uh, their building, like this one, when we came in, was just in need of a lot of work. Um, and guess what? We did it. Actually, we raised, I think, a little bit over, uh, maybe like 1300 or a little bit over 1300 something like that. So that is a picture. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. Looking to the needs of others before your own. Let me pray. Our Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you didn't consider 
you didn't consider exalting yourself more important than humbling yourself. That you lowered yourself all the way to the point of death on a cross in order that we could be raised up, in order that we could be lifted up. We thank you that through that we get to be unified, united with Christ, and through that union to be united with one another. Lord, help us to live with that kind of unity. Help us to express that unity in uh, just hundreds and hundreds of ways. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.